Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside and on the Tennis Podcast. Mitch Michaels here as always as we get ready for the latter stages, the business end of the French Open and making his Tennis Channel Inside in podcast debut. It's senior writer and executive editor at Sports Illustrated. He's been a Tennis Channel contributor for many years. He's on 60 Minutes, writes a lot of books. In fact, you can even see him on what you should know, a new Tennis Channel social feature. It's John Wertheim joining us now, John, from Paris. Thanks for calling in and joining the show. Good to be here. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, it's been uh, you know, interesting. I think this tournament has been a referendum on what we thought we knew about predictability in uh, tennis, specifically women's tennis. But I want to start here. It's been only eight months since the last French Open, and while we've seen some restrictions loosen and uh, we've seen fans and some player availability that we didn't have last time, how has it been different for you these last uh, two French Opens? I know you've been able to do the interviews with the players, but the access, something that some of the broadcasters have said even when calling matches, that the access isn't quite what it's been. How has that been as a journalist for yourself without the lack of player availability and access from French Opens of the past? Uh, it's, it's a good question. Um, you know, these are, these are strange times. And, uh, I mean, the one thing I will say is it's better than other sports I've covered where it's all zoom all the time. Um, you know, I, I think what, what I miss is, I mean, some of it is just the, the player access, but to me, it's more just, you know, you go to these events and you run into agents and publicists and coaches. And it's just kind of the sort of schmoozy social scene that really helps you get your teeth into these tournaments and hear some news and hear what people are thinking and catch up with friends. And that's, that's really, um, you know, there's, there's no real players lounge. People play their matches and get out of here. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's COVID protocol. We can only have one person on the desk at a time. I've done a lot of the, the courtside interviews, um, which, uh, you know, the last few days we've been able to do them without masks, but the players are just sort of walking off the court. I mean, it's, it's better than nothing. I think we're all happy yeah. to be here, but I think we're also looking forward to uh, next year when hopefully it's, it's business as usual and we're not uh, having having to take all these precautions and curfews and limits. And, and there's a, there's I'll tell you the the big thing to me also is that there's this 9 p.m. curfew and it's it's no joke. Yeah. I mean, at 8:45 the restaurants kick you out and the lights go out and you know the, the players have all been staying in one hotel, but. Um, it's a little strange to be in Paris this time of year, which is usually so crowded and energetic and, and bustling with tourists. And you go down the Champs-Élysées at 8.45 at night and it's a ghost town. Yeah, I've had it explained to me that from crew members at Tennis Channel working on the event that they walk home from working the late shift and there's just no one on the streets. It's just a very bizarre setting. And, and I know you've covered a lot of tennis and a lot of different sports. Have you ever seen anything quite like the curfew kicking the fans out that we've seen in the later matches at some of these most recent majors? Yeah, it's, it's funny because they, they have that at other uh, events sometimes. I mean, it's in, in London, you know, the, the tube stops. And uh, sometimes we've had late matches at Wimbledon where it's, you know, go home, everyone. 
But, I mean, we've had some really close, tight matches, and the few fans that are here are really into it. And suddenly it's, you know, it's four all in the fifth set, and they're like, all right, everybody get up and get out of here. And there, there was a great match with Mac and McDonald last week and uh, Christine Doreen, the, the seated uh, South American player. And the fans had to leave. You know, they were making all sorts of noise. It was a tight five-setter. The fans had to leave, and they just flopped themselves on the other side of the fence. And they were sort of peering through holes in the fence and cheering uh, based on rumor. And when it was over, Doreen wins this match in five sets and starts chucking towels you know we've, we've seen yeah. players obviously do that and fling them into the crowd but i've never seen them fling them over the uh the double fence before but um yeah it's again we're we're all happy to be here there, there's a major going on today there are fifteen thousand fans here but we, we have gratitude being here but it'll be nice when it's back to normal yeah this will be the first time we have fans at the night session tough to tell fans at six all in the fifth set time to go home and uh you know leave this one exactly uh, as we look on now at the women's singles bracket, and, and I'd like to meet anybody that came close to filling out a perfect Final Four because I just don't think that exists. Now, going into the quarterfinals... I, actually, I had three of the four. <laughs> I don't want to cut you off, but I had, uh, I had three of the four, and uh, you know, if, if Bedosa had pulled that out, I would have had all four. <laughs> yeah. I'm, there, I'm joking. Yeah, okay. I, I figured. I mean, that would have been amazing even for your standards. But even going into the quarterfinals, John, we had... Six first-time quarterfinals, the six first-time quarterfinalists, and and Spontek was the only seed. And a new one, even for this tournament, that's unknown is that we have now four first-time major semifinalists. Which, going through the research, the only other time that happened was in the 1978 Australian Open, which, as you know, it was a different time. Not all the players play in that event. John, this was a tournament that was known for parity in specific to other women's events, but this is a new one, even for this event. I mean. This is unprecedented land of opportunity for some players that all decide to do, it seems, break through at the exact time. Yeah, I mean, what's, what's weird here, I mean, this, this will be the sixth straight year that we have a first-time major champion winning this thing, right? So mm. it's Muguruza and Ossipenko yeah. and Bal Halop and Barty and Fontek and this year. Um, but the, um, I mean, I would say the difference is coming in here, we've had these times where, oh, the women's draw is wide open and as many as, you know, any seed could win. But you have the feeling things had really settled. And Ash Barty is playing terrific tennis. And Naomi Osaka had won 14 straight matches at majors. And Shvantec was the defending champion. And you had Serena. And then Sabalenka was playing well. And players were rounding into form. I mean, even before she was injured, you know, Hollop. And you figure this year of all years, it did seem like we were going to have one player really sort of cement her greatness and one, one of five players was going to win this and make a statement so we've had these draws before never quite to this effect but you know i mean you know, elena Ostapenko won this event uh four years ago and it's barely put a tournament sit. i mean we, we've had these surprise winners but i felt like three weeks ago you would have said yeah the women's tennis has really become really top heavy and uh that that did not happen i mean i think we were all um as, as you say, if, if you if you had one of these four players in your semifinals, you're doing pretty well. It's interesting, and I agree with you, the fact that there was just so many familiar faces at the top that it almost took the perfect storm of injuries, the, a withdrawal. You had the fact that we haven't had match reps for a lot of these players, but the fact that every single, single thing had to happen for this amount of parity to break through, that now we'll have four of the – it'll now be four of the last five French Opens that'll be won by a first-time major semifinalist is pretty startling. The fact that, 
you can look at these matches. I mean, even today, just a tale of two quarterfinal days, right? Yesterday was like all an extra time, and today it was quick, short, uh, straight set matches. So this tournament's been unpredictable for a lot of reasons. These four names, I don't know that you could have even come close to landing at these four names. Like, what do they even have in common? And here they are now at the Roland Garros semifinal. It's pretty startling. They, uh, they, they share in common that none of them have been this yeah. far in the major tournament. Uh, no, I mean, more charitably, you could say, oh, you know, you've, you've got Bobby Shinkola, great junior player. She's been in the quarterfinals half a dozen times. You know, she, she's not a no-name, and Sakari has been on this steady ascent, and she's beaten Serena, and she's won some, some big matches this year. And, you know, we all know she's a top-20 player. She wasn't anyone's favorite, but she's in the conversation. Rajikovo won a tournament coming in here, but I mean that's that's very yeah. charitably spun. Um, I mean, again, this is this is really kind of four names on a dartboard, and I mean, you know, so, someone's going to redefine their career. So we're we're here. It's not the semifinals anyone would have predicted. It's going to be transformative for one of the four. Yeah, this is going to be life altering, career changing for sure. Uh, starting with the most recent match, Sakari ending Svantex incredible run on the clay where she won the Rome Masters. She was on a 22-set uh, streak going into this match as well. 11 straight RG match wins. Really a dominant clay court player. And Sakri put it to her. She played clutch. She served it out, you know, almost flawlessly. There's been some issues in the past with her consistency, John. And we knew about this power, how tremendously fit she is, the shape she's gotten herself into. But we wondered if she had the consistency. This was the first time, and I mean it, I mean it truly in this run where we've seen the consistency where she's actually harnessed that power. So I think Sakri out now becomes the favorite by virtue of her ranking and who she's beaten to get to this point. Um, yeah, I, I think she's probably the favorite too. I mean, I think um, she's had some nice wins along the way, but she's also had some really sort of fearless wins. And this is a player who uh, has had some opportunities Flip through her fingers. You know, she, she was not known as one of the great closers. For her to go out there, play Shvantec, play a great first set, keep her level up. Shvantec leaves the court at two love, which, you know, it was a little um, perhaps questionable. It's and the new trend. Wins the next game. Yeah, exactly. Go, go with the even game. But Sakari stood right in there. 5-4, biggest serving game of her career, and, and serves it out. That was impressive stuff. And I think almost on the basis, not just of taking out the defending champion, but just the basis of how, I, I think you're right. I, I think she's probably the favorite right now. You, I believe, were the one that pointed this out, one of the first people to point this out. How hard it is to win this tournament back-to-back. -back. We'd have to go back to Justine Hennon for the last time that's happened. And, you know, it's it's a physical sport on the men's side for sure, best of five, but... I think people take for granted how physical the tennis is at all levels, singles, doubles, both sides of the draw, that you know, going back-to-back -back here is a tough task. And again, Svantec, great season, top 10 player now, but it's hard to run through this gauntlet two times in a row. Unless you're Robert Nadal. Well, uh, yeah, I mean. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. <laughs> no, it's funny because I wrote that and someone was like, what do you mean back-to-back? -back we got back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back. <laughs> Let's leave him out of this. But yeah. no, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy, but it's been um, – you know, we're, we're going on 15 years since the player went back-to-back -back here, and I think you're right. I mean, part of it is just the surface demands a lot of you, and part of it's staying healthy, and part of it's the, the conditions and the draw. And I think we, I, I think one thing these last few years have done is they've really put into sharp relief the real champions. So the, the big three plus Serena, maybe throw in 
maybe nailing the Naomi Osaka in her best and uh, throwing in healthy Andy Murray. You know, it's, these things are really hard to win. And we sort of said, oh, ho-hum, you know, the big three, they'll, they'll get to the semis and then they'll battle it out. Or, oh, Serena win another one. And what we're seeing, whether it's Dominic Team winning the U.S. Open and sort of being a diminished player ever since, whether it's Naomi Osaka and what, what she's been through, or whether it's even sort of, you know, Ash Barty coming in here playing well, but then having a freak injury. I think one thing we're seeing with all of this uh, unpredictability is that when players have done it consistently, as four, five, six players have over the last 20 years, it's really friggin' impressive. To go week in, week out at, at that level is just impressive to go from one tournament win to another. I mean, I don't think most people realize how much, how draining that is and, and you know, what's expected of these great players that they constantly deliver is amazing, as you said. The other match today I just want to mention as well, uh, Krejcova beats Coco Golf in that match. And, you know, an impressive win. She saved five set points in that first set. Got a little nervous at the end, but served it out. And this is not just a win for another Czech Republic star, John, but this is a win for someone that plays a lot of doubles. And up until yesterday, was in all three draws, mixed normal doubles, which she's still in, and now singles. So this is a player that could be doing something historic that we haven't seen at the French Open since, I think, Mary Pierce, win doubles and singles. Yeah, very good. And uh, 21 years ago, it's uh, we, we go back to Martina, who... I, th- I think if I have this right, she- she's won every major doubles title at least seven times to, g- to go with 18 majors well, and singles. Yeah, that's so like uh, there, there is level. some precedent from, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is there is precedent from, from Czech players, no less. But no, I mean, for, for some players, it's, it's really funny because for some players, oh, there's no way I can play doubles and singles and it messes up my rhythms. And other players, I mean, Svantec's in the doubles. I mean, for some of these players, it's like, big deal. I'm getting paid to practice, basically. So, uh, Krajikova had a terrific, you know, she's a number one ranked doubles player. Um, I mean, she's a terrific doubles player and essentially reached a point where she said, you know what, I want to try and, uh, I want to try this in both draws. And today, man, I mean, she's final four of a major and she'll be seated for Wimbledon. And it's, it's very nice. I mean, you know, she's in her mid twenties. I mean, this isn't uh, a young player starting out. So for her to sort of at this stage of the game say, you know what, I'm tired of being a doubles specialist. I want to devote my attention to both. Um, good, good for her. We don't, we don't often see that. Dubai finalist this year uh, was really the launching pad for her success. And we're seeing players play doubles, have success in both. John, do you think they're just developing skills that maybe the traditional singles-only players don't have? Is it an approach to the game, maybe collaborating with, other, with a partner out there? Why do you think we're seeing more double success on uh, both draws here? Um, yeah, it's, it's a great question i mean i think some of it is about skills and then volleying and, and as you say i mean some of it i think is just about putting yourself in pressure situations and putting yourself on big courts and big matches and uh you know this was hardly Krajikova's first match on uh you know she's an unseated singles player but she's you know she's won the double titles here she's she's played big matches on big stadiums having with tv cameras there so i think some of it is about court skills and about you know, an all-court game and short-hopping approaches and covering covering the alleys. But I, th- but I think a lot of this, too, is just these are players who have a lot of match experience, especially, you know, when you're the number one doubles player in the world, you've had a lot of pressure situations, and it, it's a different kind of pressure when it's just you on the court, but you're still, you know, you don't want to get broken in decisive games, and you've got ball kids scrambling around and cameras yeah. clicking, and I think we sometimes underestimate the match play 
and the pressure situations that doubles puts you in and that practice doesn't. The player she beat, Coco Goff, no stranger to double success as well. And this was another step in her journey, still 17 years old and now a quarterfinalist in a Grand Slam. We know the old adage that there's not really a mental or a moral victory in sports, right? Like you just, you, you want to win every match. She's, she's frustrated with how she played, but still fought, still progressing. And I think what we're going to get from this and for other matches from her is it is about that journey, John, still 17, the fact that she's gotten better, still some things to work on. But making her first quarterfinal is a big accomplishment, regardless of how it ended. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm with you, and I also, I mean, yeah, you know, let's let's say up front, this is a player who been eligible for the junior draw. I mean, what she's doing at this age with this much poise, and she was seated here. Her ranking's only going to go up. I mean, this is a, a terrific player. She played with maturity. I mean, there's not, yeah, you, know, you you can't say enough good things here. I think things are progressing really nicely. With all that out of the way. I do think this one's got to sting a little bit. You know, if, if she'd lost to Gushmandek uh, uh, or Ash Party, I mean, you, you would say, great, good on you, that'll be you one day. I mean, I, I think she could have won this tournament, and she had five points to win the first set. She had a nervous opponent, especially with this draw combusting. It's a great result for Coco Goff. She, she showed a lot. I mean, there's nobody that doesn't deny that she's a, a future star, but I think if we are looking at this honestly, this was a bit of a missed opportunity. You know, I mean, she's a lot, a lot more opportunities to come. There, there are four of these a year, and she's only 17. But, I mean, she she could have escaped here with a title. And when she goes back and says, you know, I, I had an unseated player on the rope, and the defending champion went out to a player I've already beaten. And, you know, on, on the other side of the draw, it's Zidonchek and Talia Tenkova. Um, I mean, I think he... You know, we, we say this all the time. It's interesting that we never really know the answer. How do players leave these events? Do you remember it for the four and a half matches you played brilliantly or for the bitter exit? And I'm really curious if you gave her truth theorem, how she would digest this. There's, there's no right answer, but um, I get the feeling she's at a point in her career when this one stinks. And we're, I mean, it's, it's total credit to her, but we are past the happy to be here phase. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. John Wertheim, Tennis Channel Inside In. I, I agree with I agree with that for sure, and and I do think that the missed opportunity question it it comes up when the draw combusts, as you said, maybe with somebody else like Serena Williams on the other side of that spectrum, where you look at how the draw was trending for her. This was as good a chance at a Grand Slam for her, and you know the the new trend with her. Not to totally veer topics here, John, is the fact that stuff is catching up with her in one match. Like she could go into a tournament and look great early on and it's just been one match the last couple you know Osaka was at another level in Australia for sure but you look at that U.S. Open match with Azarenka and some of the the previous matches the trend is maybe the fact that it's an aging athlete you don't really know exactly what you have day to day but I would how would you rate her play in this tournament I know the first couple matches were were good and it all seemed to catch up with her against Rabakina in that match in the fourth round yeah I mean you you pretty much said it I mean she looked she looked pretty good. And 
you know, this is always going to be the same as true for Roger. I mean, it's always going to be the surface that demands the most of her. You know, this is a major. She's won the fewest times. This is, uh, she, she didn't have a lot in the way of, of match play. She's lost two of her previous three matches coming in. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's got to be a bit of sting here, too. I mean, when she went out, there was only one higher-ranked player, a higher seed, and that was Sophia Kennan, who came in here having, you know, lost more matches than she's won so far. Um, no disrespect to, you know, Rabakina, who's a nice young player. I mean, she's, she's half Serena's age, and she, she hits a nice ball, and she manages the occasion. But if you said to uh, Serena Williams, you're, you're shooting for the 24th major, and you're going to be in the middle weekend of a slam, and Halep Osaka, Vardy, uh, Svitolina, just go down the list. All of them are already going to be eliminated. You, you think her eyes would light up. And uh, it's Clay. It's always going to be the tough one. But I, I do think um, this was a bit of a missed opportunity for Serena as well, potentially. With Wimbledon being so quickly around the corner, she she essentially said she's not going to play a tune-up. And there's been that narrative, right or wrong, that Wimbledon is her best chance based on to win a major based on how it plays, her success there. She's an incredible champion. So I think in her mind, regardless of the reps, regardless of the fact that it is her quote-unquote worst surface, this was an opportunity, like you said in the Coco Golf discussion, to take advantage, to beat each opponent one-on-one. And unfortunately, when she got to the fourth round, she got tripped up. So I think there's a missed opportunity. But there, of course, there's always things you can say where she is one of the very few athletes that could turn it on and mentally just grind her way to victory. So I, I don't think it's a total loss for her based on the fact that this might've been her lowest expectations going into a grand slam that I think she might've had. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the other way to spin this is, uh, boy, if, if I, if I can do this kind of damage on clay, imagine when I get to the, I mean, River for example, has never even played Wimbledon. So, um, if you're, if you're Serena, I wonder if you're not thinking, you know, the, the nicer way to spin it is, boy, if, if I can come out with a performance like this on clay, I'm feeling pretty good about my team. You know, and I think, it's, again, it's a lot of similarities between the two 39-year-olds. I mean, Roger Federer could say the exact same thing. If I'm doing middle weekend work on a clay court, I should be uh, okay on this, this grass court I've owned over the last 20 years. Switch into the men's game now, John Wertheim on Tennis Channel Insight, and you brought him up, Roger Federer, who wins a couple matches, wins a three-and-a-half-hour match that goes past midnight, well past midnight uh, <laughs> this past Saturday, and pulls out of the tournament. He had mentioned going into the tournament up front that he was not planning on winning it, didn't expect to win the tournament, wanted some match play, gets past the, a, a game opponent in Kefner, and then pulls out of the tournament, doesn't play Matteo Berrettini, who gets a a uh, walkover win to go into the quarterfinals rubbed some people the wrong way his intentions were straightforward he uh, obviously acknowledged the fact that this wasn't his surface to contend for that elusive 21st major do you think a lot of people had a problem with this move that Federer pulls out of this tournament and what's your take on the sense of Roger just being straightforward like I came to a grand slam to get match toughness well, I mean, he, he told us what he was going to do, and then he did it. So I, I credit him for that. Um, you know, I, I don't think this was Roger's uh, most gracious dismount. Um, you know, I, I don't think this was Roger's great, uh, greatest hits. On the other hand, you know, he's 39 years old. He's coming off knee surgery. He came here for matches. He told us he was coming here for matches. He won nine sets, and I feel a little like this is the tax we pay on having to have these, these greats around. They're not 
going to play a, a schedule and then have the rhythms of uh, that they did when they were 29. And if having Roger and Serena and to a lesser extent Rafa Novak for 20 years and, and not eight means we've got to cut them some slack with how they manage their bodies and their schedule, uh, so be it. And if he had simply said, I have to listen to my knee and not sort of a vague, I have to listen to my body and I got my matches in, I, I don't think anybody would have uh, would have cared. Um, again, I, I don't think this was uh, – the greatest move he's made, but I don't think it's a felony either. The other side of that, John, is is the other members of the big three that have continually had success here, have, have churned in results, match in, match out. How is it possible, as an esteemed journalist like yourself, I'm asking you this question, how is it possible that a guy who's won 13 titles is 35 years old is somehow widening the gap with the field? <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's a great question. Um, where to begin? I mean, I think you, you start with a huge download of credit, and this is an extraordinary athlete who uh, performs at an extraordinary level. So we're talking about Nadal, right? Absolutely. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. No, I mean, he's, he's incredible. I mean, I think, I think we all start to, oh, you know, it's, it's athletes today and it's court surfaces and it's technology. I think you got to start with the athlete, and he's extraordinary. I, you know, I mean, I, I do think there are sort of uh, some, some built-in structural reasons why athletes today are able to do that. But, you know, I think some of it is the surface and the conditions and the, the fact that he, you know, athletes today have, have the luxury of they've, they've got staff to keep their bodies healthy. They are, you know, they're not waiting in lines to pick up Hertz cars at the airport. I mean, there, there are a lot of things you can do to lengthen your career and to uh, take as many stresses out, but you still got to get it done. And I think that um, it's extraordinary what, what all three of these guys, plus Serena, are doing. I, I mean, that's the thing that I always get about Nadal is when he was, you know, in his early 20s, I mean, we're not talking about five, I mean, for years and years and years, we said, he's so terrific, but he plays with such intensity and it's so physical and it's so grinding. He's going to be like this NFL running backs that like just have three great seasons and then there, uh, there's no tread on the tire. I mean, of all people to still be playing at this level, I think a lot of tennis fans came out and saw the level that he competed and how much work he put in. And this wasn't light on his feet better. This was the guy who's had injuries. And it was sort of, you know, enjoy him while you can. That was like 2008. And here we are, uh, there's a 35-year-old man. He's, he's playing as we speak. He uh, has won the first set. He has not dropped a set. Um, and I think you're right. I, mean, I think there's a lot about this venue, especially these conditions. I mean, it's sort of everything here from the size of the court to the you know, the, to the, how fast the clay is playing to the fact that it's a hot day in June. I mean, everything plays to his strength, but he's still getting it done. So, uh, cre- credit him first. And then we can sort of, uh, t- pick apart yeah. the, uh, the sort of organic tennis reason second. It's amazing that he's held up, that he always rounds into form at this tournament and, you know, always peaks at the right time. And last year he proved whatever time of year that is. So it was just peak at the right time at Roland Garros. 105 and two at Roland Garros now on a career you mentioned the set streak. He hasn't lost any sets this tournament. And it's gotten to the point still at 35 years old, John, where I just can't see anybody beating him best of five on clay. I just can't see it. Well, that, I'm glad, no, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something else. I mean, best of five really helps these guys in, in a variety of ways. I mean, one of it is just it's, it's that big a sort of probability. The, the sample size gets bigger. We saw again and again a player gets hot for an hour, but eventually the better player is going to win out. And we've seen that um, we've seen that again and again. 
as Nadal faces a, uh, a, a set point. Um, but also, I think these guys, they know how to pace themselves. They've been to this point in the tournament. They sort of know what to do with their energy, how to ration it. We've seen a number of cases. I mean, just two two days ago with, with Novak and, and Lorenzo Massetti, the Italian teenager, if that's a best-of-three match, Novak Djokovic isn't in this tournament. Instead, the teenager wins the first two sets. He's got zero left. Novak knew exactly how much he had left, and the kid barely won a game the rest of the way. And I think uh, when, when we do talk about the longevity and the sustained excellence, I, I do think you, you got to put best-of-five right up there because um, – you know, it, it does give these guys that extra cushion. It absolutely does. Nadal's brilliance on clay has also overshadowed players in the past. Federer, for a while, was the second greatest clay corn player. Djokovic is 78-15 on clay at Roland Garros, and teams had a great run making two consecutive finals, but Nadal just stands alone there. And, and, and looking at Djokovic, you brought him up. He drops two sets early to Musetti and then completely rolls him in the last three. Musetti retires because of cramps and whatnot with the last two games of that match. I always have to ask this question and try to figure this question out myself, but where's Djokovic's headspace at, would you think, John, coming into this one where he's won another Australian Open championship, he's going into Nadal territory, but he always seems calm and, and he always has that sense of belief, from my estimation, that no matter the surface, he can do well. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, success breeds success, and Djokovic was Terrific in Australia, and he won uh, number number eighteen. And then he had a bit a bit of a rough patch and lost in a number of matches to players he's not accustomed to losing to, to Dick Karatsev and to Dan Evans. Then he lost to Rafa again. I, I think winning that tournament in Serbia right before the French Open. I think a lot of people said, "What, what are you doing playing an event the week before?" But it, it seemed to infuse him with some confidence. You know, I, I don't know to what extent he believes he can beat Rafa here, but I think he's kind of taking the. And I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you something else that's funny is for years and years and years we obsess over this goat race and then the slams and who's crawling within a couple of who and who's overtaking who. And here we are, better is out of the tournament. Nadal is basically, you know, as, as we stand here, five, five steps away from taking over this lead for the first time ever. Djokovic is going to either be, you know, probably three behind or, or, or else one behind. Mm. And we, we've kind of lost that. Uh, I mean, it, it hasn't really been one of the big storylines. We're talking about Rafa and 14 and the wide open women's draw and Osaka, et cetera. And uh, it, it is pretty funny that we're at a tournament where for the first time ever, Federer could be a clip. We would have a new leader in this great scoreboard, you know, in this great kind of a scoreboard dot race that we've all been following. And uh, it's kind of like the secret in plain sight at this at this event. Um, but I think back, back to your question about Djokovic. I, th- I think he's sort of taking the long. I think he's sort of playing the long game here. And uh, I don't know to what extent he really thinks he can beat Rafa in a best of three match. I mean, the last time they played on clay, Rafa won. The last time they played the final here in October, Rafa really won. But I think Djokovic likes his chances. Big picture of retiring with the most majors. If we get that semifinal showdown, and I know Schwartzman just took the second set, so props to Diego for getting it done and doing the un- somewhat unthinkable taking a set off Rafa on clay, but that would be the 58th time these two men have played. 58. And it would be the 17th in a Grand Slam, the 27th on clay. Just a rivalry of epic proportions and the match that I think men's tennis has seen the most and is certainly at a high level. So I think Nadal Djokovic, again, on clay on any surface, 
maybe Djokovic's only underdog status against Rafa is on clay, but he gets up for big matches. So I think there's going to be a sense of belief. Now, to your point, I don't know that he really does think that he could win best of five over Nadal at the French Open, but he knows he can beat Nadal and play with him. So I think there is confidence there. It, it, it's funny because it's, it's kind of come and gone even on clay. That, you know, Djokovic had Rafa's number on clay for about two years, including beating him here. Mm. Um, and now Rafa's kind of turned the tables. And, um, I mean, again, I think, uh, I think Djokovic has won one of the last six sets against Nadal and clay. I, you know, I mean, it's, it's conditions. If, if Rafa, you know, as, as we talk right now, we're in a third set, they split the first two. So if Rafa gets really pushed by Diego Schwartzman, that might fire Djokovic with additional confidence. I mean, we'll sort of have to see. But, um, you know, r- right now I feel, you know, R- R- Rafa's always going to be the favorite here. Djokovic is probably number two. But I think Djokovic is sort of really thinking big picture uh, about his tennis right now. John Wertheim on Tennis Channel Inside In. The other side of that coin is that that matchup isn't a final. We're going to have a new finalist at the French Open, either Alexander Zverev or Stefano Tsitsipas. Both those guys won in convincing straight set fashion to get to the semifinal with Tsitsipas beating one of the new rival, one of his new rivals, at least off the court on tour, in Daniil Medvedev. So Tsitsipas Zverev is the match. Zverev had that stumble in the first match down two sets. has been rolling ever since. This is a big opportunity. I think they both have been pretty open about that, that not having the other members of the big three, the big two on this clay tournament is a big opportunity to get to the final. And, John, it's also kind of another low-key rivalry where I just don't get the sense that Tsitsipas and Zverev are, are quite friendly. I'll just put it that way. I think this is an intense rivalry with both guys gunning to be the next up and, and the, the face of their generation. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you're right. I think there's a big big opportunity we, we knew it when the tournament began big opportunity at the bottom of that draw but that also meant uh you know there was a big uh big disappointment if you didn't convert that opportunity so i think for whatever player wins i mean i think if you're your Sitsipas, you said I'm, I'm playing so well i'm probably you know i don't think anyone thought dominic team was going to do much uh unfortunately it was a big big opportunity for Sitsipas. if he doesn't come through he will be disappointed i suspect same goes for Zverev, who, uh, you know, again, he's, he's going deep in these events. He got to the U.S. Open final. He got to the semis in Australia. But he's still without a major. I mean, the guy's going to probably win, uh, go past $25 million in career prize money. But he wants that major. And I think whoever leaves here on that bottom half of the draw without even getting to the final, I think, is, is not going to perhaps consider this tournament much of a success. The Sitsipas-Zverev matchup is fascinating. They've They've taking each other on for the last couple of years. It's been a seesaw of a battle, and Tsitsipas uh, has turned himself into a great clay court player. Zverev just winning Madrid, proving he can get it done on that surface. I like these guys, so I'm going to ask this question uh, respectfully, but who would you say has a little bit of a bigger ego? <laughs> between Tsitsipas and Zverev, because they're both confident guys, Like, and I think oh, that's man. part of the reason yeah, why they've I mean, I broken think it's through. A different, uh, yeah, I think it's a good question. I think, I think it's a different kind of ego. Um, you know, I mean, I think Sitsipas is probably the, the guy uh, most of us would rather be friends with, but um, it, it's a different kind. I mean, I think Sitsipas is pr- proudly and unabashedly different. And, you know, I mean, I think Zverev is, um, you know, he has some, some work to do in the image department. I think he's kind of more of a sort of the, the classical egoist. And uh, Sitsipas has an ego and a sense of self-regard, but in, in a very different kind of way. And, uh, 
you know, I think a, a tour through their social media, their press conferences, or, I mean, it, it, it's funny because you're, you're right. They both uh, sort of ha- have a certain level of, of self-belief, but I think it comes from a very different place and gets expressed in a very different way. Yeah, Sotsipas is, is just a confident guy, and you can tell, I mean, even with the, the video vlogging, like, he probably thinks he's a top five vlogger in the world in addition to tennis. That's just his his outlook on life and what he believes. And uh, I can't wait for this match. The opportunity that uh, is upcoming for these two, two players is, uh, is very good. John Wertheim, uh, a couple things before I let you go here on tennis channel inside in, you tweeted out, I think ahead of the curve on this one, that Naomi Osaka is not going to play in Berlin. So I, I'm reading through the tea leaves here. I don't think it feels good for her chances at Wimbledon to play. Is there anything new on that front? Uh, Osaka at Wimbledon, should we, not expect that, or is there still a pretty good chance she plays? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I, I have no, uh, I, mean, I don't know if anyone does. I don't think the tour doesn't know. I don't think I have no inside information here. I think that, uh, you know, we're reading, reading the tea leaves. I, I don't know if uh, between, you know, between everything she's been through here, she returned to LA, not a lot of grass courts in LA, pulled out of Berlin. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine her missing the Olympics. But I can tell you there are a lot of people that don't expect to see her at Wimbledon. But, again, I, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of what's going on here is uh, she's, she's – and, you know, this is this is not a, judgmentally or much less critically, but she's, she's not telling people a lot about her plan. I mean, a lot of people were caught flat-footed, were sort of blindsided by this announcement. I mean, clearly uh, the, the WTA certainly was. I don't, I don't think she's telling a lot of people her plans. I would not be surprised if she uh, skipped Wimbledon. I would be shocked if she skipped the Olympics. Yeah, we definitely wish her the best first and foremost, but uh, it's unfortunate to just not see her play tennis. I think that's where a lot of us are, and uh, you know, we, we want to wish her the best and see her back on the courts. But uh, with, the, with the lack of time in between these majors, too, that doesn't help anything either. And then the last thing, John, you've been kind of on the front on the front regard in terms of the scheduling for the end of the year, specifically the WTA. We're looking at Indian Wells in October for both tours. Asian Swing looks like it's in peril, but the WTA finals will take place, which uh, I think is a good thing for the sport. We just don't know the details, but it's good, as you say, that they're committed and that they will have a year-end tournament this year. Yeah, exactly. Um I think it's going to be interesting to see how this, this all plays out. I mean, again, Indian Wells is happening in October. That's a plus. The WTA really, uh, I mean, it's barely a week after that event is over. It's going to hold some version of an eight-player final. I, You know, I've Singapore, I've heard. I, I don't think it can happen in Indian Wells because I think they're already committed um, unless they can move some puzzle pieces. I mean, it probably makes sense to have it in Europe just given the um, concentration of players. But this is a big deal. I mean, the WTA made a big, big bet on China. And, um, you know, last last fall obviously didn't happen. And um, with an Olympics coming up in 2022, I'm told that uh, the Chinese government, the sports authorities are really reluctant to have any sort of potential complication with another sporting event. So um, we'll see. But, uh, again, we'll the, the official announcement has not come. I've heard it looks pretty bleak for China, at least on the women's side. And we'll see where this World Tour final, or see where the WTA finals gets held. Well, at least we'll have something this year. Uh, as you said, stay tuned. Uh, I'm excited to see how that goes, as well as the tail end of this French Open. John Wertheim, thanks for joining Tennis Channel Insight. And you can catch him on 60 Minutes. 
the tennis.com feature what you should know and uh again before i forget props to uh and congratulations next week uh june 15th the book comes out glory days the summer of 1984 i'm pretty pumped to, to read it myself I and uh, and i think the i mean look you had me when you had a cover with michael jordan gretzky and prince on it so i was just in when i saw that uh, Martina and McEnroe loom large as well. For the tennis crowd. That's good. That, that's something for people that weren't around to kind of learn how important that those 90 days were. Uh, but John, thanks for coming on tennis channel inside in. Appreciate you, uh, taking the time out of your schedule to do this and, uh, good luck with, uh, covering tennis and everything else going forward. You got it. Always good talking. Thanks. That was John Wertheim. Huge thanks to him for coming on this week's edition of Tennis Channel Inside In. And if you like the show, you can find the entire catalog of episodes on the Tennis Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com slash podcasts and you'll see this show along with others. The all new, all redone, re-imaged tennis.com. Your one-stop shop for all your tennis needs. A lot of great content out there by my colleagues, and uh, there is just a lot to like. We'll be back next week to recap Roland Garros, talk about our newly crowned champions, as well as some interviews with some players, some analysts, coaches on the tour, everybody that makes this sport what it is. You will find that on Tennis Channel Inside In. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. This was Tennis Channel Inside In.